HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com. Boys, I'm mellow as a honeydew. Yeah, that cat is high. Look that look in his eye. Oh, man, he's high. Yes, higher than a kite. That cat is high. You're listening to The Speakeasy. I'm your host, Damon Bolte. Today in the studio, we have a very interesting man by the name of Phil Ward, who works at uh, Mayawell in the Lower East Side in New York City. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you, Damon. It's good to have you here. Um, so, <clears throat> you've bartended at quite a few uh, like classic cocktail bars around New York City. Um Pegu Club, Flatiron Lounge, some of the originals in the uh, the cocktail renaissance, I guess you could say, uh, or the revival, rather. Um, and uh, now you have uh, a really great place uh, called Mayawell down on 6th Street and between 1st uh, and 2nd, correct? Yep. Cool. And in what capacity are you involved at Mayawell? Uh, well, my employees would probably say I'm unemployed, uh, <laughs> but I guess you could say I'm the beverage director, um, one of the proprietors, um, but uh, I guess you could say I manage to some degree. Cool. Um, now, a little bit about my OL for the listeners, if they haven't been there before. Um, it's focusing on more of the agave-based spirits. It's tequila and mezcal, and then some really great food which we got to sample the other night which was a lot of fun with a bunch of drunken bartenders <laughs> some norwegians involved um how did this concept come about um well like you said my my background was working at Flatiron, then pegu and then um helping dave kaplan open uh death and company and basically it was all just an evolution 
Um, you know, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, classic cocktails and, you know, when you read old, that's basically how I figure that I learned how to make drinks was through reading old books and classic cocktails and working with Julie, who uh, actually taught me what a uh, cocktail was and then working with Audrey. Um, but essentially, when you read all those old books and learn how to make drinks, there was no, there weren't very many uh, classic tequila cocktails. And as a bartender, you know, you always want to create something new. And naturally, I just started gravitating towards uh, tequila and scotch because those were the two two uh, really great spirits that you didn't read about as much in classic cocktails. Um, and basically, you know, Flatiron three years, Pegu Club for a little over a year, about three months. Um, you know, made drinks. Uh, most of the drinks I actually did get on those menus was probably with tequila. The first one being a uh, revived uh, Diablo at uh, Flatiron. Uh, but it was something that that it seemed like needed to be done. It was um, something that it's tequila. Obviously, it's <clears throat> a delicious, b versatile, and um, <clears throat> you know, c it seemed to work really well. So uh, when D and C was really up and going, you know, we had uh, we had about probably 60 to 80 drinks on the list uh and we we broke uh broke the menu down uh according to spirit and stirred and shaken and a lot of the nights there a uh, a quarter of the drinks at least would be tequila and mezcal that we we're making that's interesting and uh you know there was an opportunity where i i had uh, somebody approach me and said i have a space and uh what what should we do with it and it, it pretty much seemed like a no-brainer because, you know, you had Death & Company where, you know, we were pretty renowned for making good drinks. And the people who came there were people who really were educated. Well, I don't know if educated is the right word, but people who were familiar with what, what they thought good drinks were and came there because it was a place where they thought the good drinks were. And, uh, you know, some nights, you know, we do more tequila drinks than anything else. So it really was just a no-brainer to try to do uh, a bar that exclusively uh, – you know, highlighted those spirits, especially if you take into consideration uh, at the time, you know, there were tequila bars in New York, but it right. seems like with tequila bars, it's more a matter of like, like, uh, not, you know, it was just, oh, I have 150 bottles of tequila on my right. back bar. And you don't know what to do with them or anything yeah. about them. Yeah. And people still loved that. They loved, they loved going to a tequila bar and drinking tequila and eating bad Mexican food right. and things like that. And that was already popular and cocktail bars were already popular. So it was like, hell, why not combine the two and, you know, have, have two things that people love. And then on top of that with, uh, with the food, you know, there was a lot of places in New York where you could get a good drink or good food, Not but both. there weren't many right. that you could do it under one roof with one, you know, cohesive idea behind it, this being Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are so many transplants in New York City uh, from different parts of the country and obviously different parts of the world. But for me, personally, I, uh, I really like going to my well because it's the kind of food that I grew up around being from, like, around Oklahoma and Texas, you know, uh, lots of really great mexican food but we didn't necessarily have great tequila cocktails or anything like that um and it never really made sense to me because there are only a few different types of cuisine that make sense when you pair cocktails with them like there's like dark and bitter and boozy with like lots of like heavy rich like meats yep. and stuff like that uh then there's like polynesian like tiki drinks those go well together you can actually pair those with food barbecue and whiskey barbecue and whiskey That's, or mezcal yeah <laughs> and then uh then mexican food with uh, tequila and uh, mezcal based drinks um 
so yeah, um, you, I, I, yeah, it's definitely a no-brainer because you've got so many transplants like myself coming into the city, and they're missing that. Also, those harsh New York winters, it's like you want a little sunshine in there, and you can have that year-round, you know? So uh, that, that's really great. Um, you, uh, you've been uh, considered to be one of the one of like the leading experts in the in the bar world on uh, mezcal and tequila, agave-based spirits. How did that come about? I mean, like, you, I know you've been, uh, you were telling me earlier about uh, the tequila uh, interchange project and uh, talking about uh, meeting up with Ron Cooper from Del Maggie. How, how did this all start? I mean, you, you were obviously passionate about making these cocktails, but how did you get so involved with the... Well, it was, that world. it was the the mezcal my mother put in my milk as a child. <laughs> no, honestly, honestly, I feel really guilty about this because, you know, tequila is something that I, I really, really always enjoyed and thought was a really great spirit. And once I tasted mezcal, it was really on in earnest. Mm-hmm. But really, it, it when you come down to it, I, I mean, my OL was like a business decision. You know, mm-hmm. it was something that I knew worked and was uh, was something that was just it was such a no-brainer that if you know i don't think there'll ever be anything that obvious to me the rest of my life but (laughs) but since since that time and you know the six or seven times i've been in mexico um you know in the last two years or whatever that it's open i've just simply positively fallen in love with the place you know and uh there's you know that i'm very lucky you know i got to meet people like ron cooper and david soro and travel in Mexico with these people, and you know, it's not not even just about the spirits anymore. It's about like the country that it's from and the time you spend there. And it uh, it really was an evolution more than anything. But I think everything in life is an evolution. You know, you don't just you don't just decide you want to be this or that. It's you grow into it and things like that. And that's that's sort of like what happened. I really wish my mother would have put mezcal in my milk. I would have been <laughs> ahead of the game, but she didn't. Um. Yeah, it's interesting. You, I, I really want to talk about this. Uh, the uh, tequila, uh, tequila interchange or interchange project, um, and I, I find that fascinating. Like, because it's, I have quite a few friends now that are opening up their own places, and it's, it was just, it wasn't necessarily what they were going to do like a couple, three years ago. But it's, it's kind of like exactly what you were talking about. Uh, you get to a certain point where, just in the same way about like making cocktails, making inventing cocktails like we were talking about before and we'll get to in a moment um you kind of have to like pay your dues and then like work up from the classics same thing with business you've got to figure out like the fundamentals of running a business and you know inventory and uh order blah 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 blah, 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 blah. all that crap (laughs) but uh but i think it's uh it's really neat that that played out that way for you um now during these travels down to uh to mexico and uh to oaxaca and the Gordon Triangle and whatnot. Um, you uh, you've been working with this uh, this organization called the Tequila Interchange Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, the Tequila Interchange Project was started by David Soro, who's uh, one of the nicest human beings on earth. Owns uh, really, he probably arguably had one of the first uh, tequila bars, even though it was a restaurant in Philadelphia called Tequilas. Mm-hmm. Um, that that place opened, is awesome. yeah, that opened like almost a quarter of a century ago. And uh, basically, David's a very passionate man, and you know he loves tequila. Obviously, he has his own brand, Sambre Azul. But uh, even before that, probably made him blush that I even named his uh, his his brand because he cares about tequila as a whole so much more than that. Absolutely. And, and there's a lot of there's a lot of issues in uh, tequila right now. You know, with the 
with the with the plants and how they're all cloning and you mm-hmm. know one there's a really big fear that there could just really easily be like a really bad plague and really he really thinks the future of tequila is uh is really threatened by mm-hmm. by like the production habits and things like that absolutely and so basically what he did was he started this program called the tequila interchange program which involves usually uh about eight bartenders going down to mexico to the tequila region with um uh professors from the university of guadalajara and we travel around mexico and you know we'll have archaeologists uh agronomists many different many different kinds of uh um professors who and it's like time traveling because you know it's not just going down to see tequila it's going down to be to like be mexico and learn mexico and uh Maybe if Rodolfo hears this, hello, Rodolfo, you're the cute, coolest <laughs> human being on earth. He kind of reminds me of Dr. Spock. Uh, but anyways, it's just really about uh, trying to raise awareness about what's going on in tequila and, uh, you know, working with tequila distilleries and things like this and really just trying to educate the consumer about what is happening in Mexico yeah. and uh, trying to make longevity of tequila better than just like short-term, you know, economical benefits for those who are trying to produce it. You know, I, another thing, like, I was down at, at his restaurant in, in Philadelphia maybe a year and a half ago or so. Maybe maybe it was just about a year ago. Um, and I really liked, he did this huge, this huge presentation in their, their, like, private dining room for a bunch of uh, bartenders that came down from New York City. Um, about exactly what you're talking about and the way that it's, like, seemingly almost, like, there's a plague coming to the tequila world. Uh, but one of the things that really caught my attention, that it, he was talking about the humidor. Yeah. And how it's kind of like a dying art. And yep. that in itself is uh, something that's uh, that could potentially like hurt the tequila industry. Yeah, that's that's one of David's biggest uh, biggest things is the humidor. But it's not even just the humidor. It's just basically the Mexican people as a whole. Like yeah. just some of, some of the distilleries down there you know, the way they take advantage of the people who live there, or, you know, there's one, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to name names because I've learned to wise it up, but, you know, there's one particular town where the town doesn't even have water sometimes because the distillery, which is making, I don't know, millions or billions of dollars a year, takes all the damn water from this town. And it's just, it's, it's regrettable. And, you know, David, David does use the, uh, the humidors as a poster child, you know, because you have generations and generations of people who, you know, like you learn, like, good example is like when you go down there you know when you plant agave you don't you know you plant them all next to each other at the same time mm-hmm. you know but in eight years uh bob over here on the left side is done but uh rico on the right <laughs> side he's not done and how do you tell that and you ask a humidor that and you know they have a few different little clues about it but at the end of the day it's really they just kind of know because they've been in those fields for eight years and their father taught them how to know when a plant they've is, seen it when every a plant day. is yep. is you know uh is mature mature you know and um that's something that really concerns him a lot and you know it's it's a valid it's a valid valid thing because you know a lot of hemidors now a lot of place you know the price of agave is very very low right now um and a lot of hemidors you know they they're they can make more money picking potatoes in idaho or something you know <laughs> so so a lot of them are leaving and you know there's no way to no way to replace that knowledge Speaking of leaving, we're going to take a quick break, but we are definitely going to come back and uh, we'll continue to talk with Phil Ward of Maya Well in New York City about uh, agave and tequila based uh, and mezcal based cocktails. Be right back. 
He was painting dirt from his head to his foot His hair so black that it looked like soot Well, he reined in his mule and he hitched him to the rail And he said, old feller, it's the end of the trail Well, he ambled down to the old saloon He said, I know it's early and it ain't quite noon But hey, hey, everybody drink on me Everybody have a drink, have a drink, have a drink on me Everybody have a drink on me Hey, hey, everybody drink on me Died and left an oil well to me Hey, hey, everybody drink on me I've been digging all my life And I nearly dug to hell But my uncle dug potatoes And he struck an oil well Hey, hey, everybody drink on me Let me hear you, man Have a drink, have a drink, have a drink on me Everybody have a drink on me This is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. Keeping something at a static... And we are back. <laughs> we have Phil Ward in the studio. We're, we've been talking about uh, agave-based agave spirits like mezcal and tequila and the market for them and uh, basically the economy of Mexico and how it's been fluctuating lately uh, due to uh, all kinds of different uh Different aspects: the uh, the humidor, the uh, the cloning of the plants. There was also, I, I feel like it was like about ten years ago, if not more. It might have been like the mid to late nineties. There was a huge tequila agave drought, um, and I think it, it was was it a, a couple of different reasons? Was it just because of uh, the over harvesting? I thought there was also like something similar to like a phylloxera breakout yeah. or something i mean it was several things there was a little bit of a plague for the plants and there was also uh you know tequila's grown a lot over the 10 years and they didn't foresee that that growth mm-hmm. um but pretty much pretty much you know like i've talked to david a lot about this and it's pr- pretty much it's it's cyclical you know there's always a cycle there's there's a shortage so everybody plants and then there's too much so nobody does like right, right now there's people you know when you when you travel around Jalisco now you'll see like a lot of abandoned fields and things like that or more corn and things like that because the price of agave right now is so low so what will happen is everybody will stop everybody will stop planting and it's not like wheat or like corn or something that it only takes a year we're talking about almost a decade from now when those those plants will be mature so so everybody will stop planting now, and then we'll have a shortage. So it's pretty much seems like it's been like that forever. Um, you know, one thing they've they have talked about is trying to make a minimum price, or I don't know what the economic term is, but a standard standardized, standardized yeah. price for agave. So you know, like now, it's basically now 
a producer, you know, asked people to make, you know, grow this much blue agave for him at this price eight years ago when there wasn't as much, but now there's so much and, it, you know, they've grown these, grown these agaves on small plantations and things like that. And then they come back and they say, oh, no, I'm going to give you this price instead of that price. And what the hell is the guy going to do? Because he has agaves that he can sell or rot. Do you think there's any influence like from like agave nectar being sold? This is kind of like on subject, but a little bit off. But uh, you know, yeah. agave nectar became a very popular sweetener. Yeah, like uh, like a healthier sweetener uh, option over the last you know five to seven years. It's really blown up in the last four years, seemingly. Yeah. Um, do you think that has anything to do with the fact that? Now there is an abundance of agave, or do you think it no, was something... No, I think it was all tequila. I mean, when you think about it, like the like the plants that were planted eight years ago, there wasn't that there wasn't that market for agave. But that's a really interesting thing I haven't thought about. Um, maybe that is one of the reasons why you see so many agave nectars on the market. It kind of freaks me out. And I kind it, of want to just take it home and distill it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but actually, though, it, I, I guess actually it's a really good thing because if there wasn't agave nectar, there'd probably be even no. a lower market yeah, exactly. price for the agave that they make tequila with. Absolutely. Um, speaking of... Uh, Are you dry? I'm, I'm, I am dry. We've been uh, sampling some really nice... I'm just going to pass it over. One of your favorite producers, probably your favorite. Uh, yeah. Yes. And uh, one of my favorite guys, too, uh, Ron Cooper from uh, Del Maggie, Mezcal. Which uh, just won Distiller of the Year at the San Francisco uh, Spirits Tasting, I'd like to mention. Cool. But Congratulations, what- Del Maggie. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well earned. Absolutely. But what we're drinking, uh, what we're drinking now is uh, Pachuga, made uh, by Luis at, uh, in the town of Minas. Um, last time I was there, uh, he sold he sold us a bottle of Pachuga, uh, which is a third distillation of a Del Maguey Mezcal called Monero, uh, distilled a third time with uh, when the fruits of the season are in season, uh, wild plantains, wild mountain apples, um, anise, uncooked white rice, almonds, cinnamon, and they hang a skinless wash raw chicken breast in the still. Nice. And this is uh, this is only the body of the batch. There's no heads or tails. Oh, nice. And, well, and uh, Stigi Bayou. That's what they say down there. Oh, sweet. Stigi Bayou. It means like to uh, to you, to your friends, to the earth, and uh, then they say bikin, which means drink. Okay, bikin. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, the, the, so uh, a little bit about Del Maggie. They come on the market. Well, like three or four years ago. Oh no, it was longer than that. Really? Um, Delmage Delmage was started by uh, a gentleman called Ron Cooper, who I think of as yoga uh, as the Yoda of mezcal. Um, according to him, it started as a uh, a joke between him and his friend uh, in a bar one night when they asked if the Panamanarkin Highway really existed. So basically, what they did was uh, took a car from Alaska and drove the Panamanarkin Highway all the way down to Oaxaca. And uh, Ron's also a somewhat famous artist, or a famous artist. Um, and when they got to Oaxaca, he discovered mezcal. And when he when he was in Oaxaca uh, and discovered mezcal, he loaded up a whole truckload of mezcal to bring back to the states. 
And when he got to the border to bring him back to the States, the border guard said, you can't bring that in here. And uh, Ron drove, turned his car around and went back to Mexico, and he swore that that day that he was going to figure some way to get Mezcal into the country for all his friends. And uh, Del Maguey was born. And uh, Del Maguey is basically the umbrella company for uh, single village Mezcals. Um, there's five different villages um, who are all part of the company, and, you know, they're, they're all... They're all independent. Uh, the each each distiller or pelincaro, um, you know, they make make their own mezcal their own way, and they're all different. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it's the most amazing spirit on earth. Yeah, it's it's very good. My favorite, uh, which is, I do like the pachuga and the and the minero, but I, I really like the chichicapa, yeah. which is like yeah, just well, so I smoky always, and nice. I always prefer to having affairs with each bottle. Because <laughs> um, you know, I, I was I was on the big Chichi Chapa train for a while. Right now, um, me and Monero have been uh, spending a lot of time together. Um, but you know, one of the words that I always hate is best. I, I I don't really believe in the word best is so much as different because each one of these is so unique and uh, so delicious in their own different way. And you know, we're creatures of mood and things like that. So there's different days and different moods and different bottles you want to reach for. Cool. Yeah. Absolutely. Same with, you know... Whiskey. Whiskey. Rum. Know. Whatever. I, I feel like there was something cool that you said earlier about... Well, not not very cool, but like... Uh, <laughs> kind of unfortunate uh, about the fact that people have become, over the last decade or so, more educated on tequila and agave-based spirits and mezcal. And what happened was it blew up so fast that, you know it was hard to keep up and that's kind of like what's happening with rye whiskey right now too because you, you remember like in the late 90s like the late 90s early 2000s like people started really finding out about like quality tequilas up until a certain point they had that night of tequila shots in college of like montezuma or whatever and uh then they swore it off until like their you know mid-20s and they started uh learning that there were actually some good tequilas out there um, based on that, do you think now, like going back to what we were saying, do you think it's, it's going to, do you think we'll see another like agave drought, um, anytime soon or, or cause I, I, I'm, I'm kind of afraid to, to think about the way that now, like with, with bars like yours and, there's a lot of places on the West Coast. I was out there in San Francisco a couple months ago, and God, they drink so much freaking tequila, and and it's become very popular, um, and for good reason. Do you think? Do you foresee any kind of like shortage coming up anytime soon? Um, it could happen, but one of the wonderful things about mezcal versus tequila is tequila. Um, you know, they they chose that you had to use only blue agave mm-hmm. to make tequila. You know, because that was a plant that matured faster and it was a quicker quicker turnover time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, whereas mezcal can be made from, you know, up to, you know, 25, 26, even more than that agaves. So while there could be a shortage and things like that, and while most of it is made from espadine, um, there still is other, There's it's not just all one type of agave uh, to make it from. And also a lot of these are, you know, some of them are wild or semi-cultivated. So they're still really choosing where they want to live and choosing, you know, kind of evolving. Mm-hmm. So they're not as, as, uh, 
susceptible to like plagues or diseases and things like that because they're not all clones of each other yeah so i mean that is one that is one good thing but i mean there's no doubt that you know i really fear that mezcal will become a victim of its own success the way tequila is like the number you know we've been open for two years at myowell and i think about you know the the number of tequila new tequila producers who have come in there to taste me on things it just makes me want to cry more than carry it you know um are you uh, are you carrying uh, Justin Timberlake's tequila? <laughs> I don't know who that is. Yeah, I don't either. Um, <laughs> um, but no, I, I so I'm sure you know you already do have some mezcals that are coming out that aren't very good quality, and it's really trying to take advantage of you know the really hard work that people like Ron Cooper's been doing for almost two decades. Yeah, um, Steve Olson as well. We should also give a nod out to him because he's Absolutely. helped he's helped uh, helped Ron along in his uh, in his journey. Uh, to where we are now, which uh, I really feel guilty about because I almost feel like I'm just taking taking advantage of all the work that those guys did. But at the end of the day, I guess it's better for mezcal. But um, you're, you are going to see that, you know, like there's unsmoked tequila, unsmoked mezcals out now and things like that. It's like it's a joke, you know. Yeah. Uh, we we have a few more minutes left. Um, you have another bottle in front of you. <laughs> Would you like to try that out? Uh, yeah. This is, this is a bottle of... Um, of mezcal from Durango, the Durango region of Mexico, made from uh, the Maguey Sanizo, if I'm pronouncing that right. I uh, I procured this bottle at my favorite bar in the world, uh, Pere de Soufrer, in Guadalajara, nice. owned by a gentleman with the uh, very conspicuous name of Pedro Mar- uh, Pedro Jimenez. <laughs> um, Pedro, my friend uh, Ryan Fitzgerald uh, from San Francisco. He told me about Pere de Soufrer, uh, I guess, last year at some time when I was heading down to Guadalajara. And I've decided in the four or five times I've been there since, it's my favorite bar in the world. It's uh, very simple. Uh, Pedro's one of the nicest guys I've ever met, and his, uh, his, de- his mezcal selection is just silly. Um, last time I was there... I decided that we went down the last tip trip. I think we visited him three times, maybe four. Uh, but I decided that Forrest Gump was wrong. <laughs> that life isn't a box of chocolates, like his mama said. It's it's a mezcal at Paradusa Frere because you never know what the hell you're going to get. Is <laughs> this every 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 mezcal is just so different and amazing? Absolutely. And um, it's a very simple place. Just he's only open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday because I. Th- believe he does something in movies or something too but just very bare bones place very simple snacks he sells tamales uh has a dj um who's always awesome like it's i don't know the music very well because i'm not from mexico but it sounds very very good who just spins every night and uh it's very very neat place awesome and so this this one's uh to pedro to pedro um, before we sign off, Phil, uh, I definitely would like to have you back sometime as a guest, because uh, I feel like we have so much more to talk about. Um, is there any way that people can look up uh, the Tequila Interchange Project? Is yeah. there a website? Yeah, there's a website. Okay. Do you uh, do you have that uh, <laughs> that information for us right now? Um, it's it's just I think it's like www.tequilainterchangeprogram.com. Okay, cool. Or just Google it. Cool, man. <laughs> That's what I usually just do anyway. Yeah. Um, 
man, I really want to thank you so much for being on the show today. And like I said, you got to come back sometime. Uh, we can get a get a gang of kids in here and uh, talk about Table Forty Two. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to thank you again. I want to thank uh, the Heritage Food uh usa i want to thank my producer jack Ensley, and also i want to thank uh katie and patrick martins from heritage foods we had a great time on sunday at del posto uh check it check out next week uh i'm not sure who's on i can't remember right now but i'm sure it'll be somebody very fun to drink with and talk about booze thanks phil cheers thank you damon you know that cat's been drinking got no shoes upon his feet thanks for listening to this program on the heritage radio network you can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows you can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. You know I wouldn't lie. He's higher than the sky. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. The Snacky Tunes compilation has arrived and is available for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com. This compilation features live performances from some of the hottest acts around today, including Midnight Magic, Surfer Blood, Overhoffer, and more. Again, you can download this compilation for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com, and make sure to listen to Snacky Tunes every Monday at 2 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network.